page one, or 1881 in your pew Bible. So James 1, verse 13 to 15. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. And then, after desire has conce conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nini. There's a story that's told in Scripture and a couple of the gospel accounts of that, that last night, right before Jesus is arrested. And in that story, Jesus goes with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And he leaves them uh, in, in one spot and goes on a little further by himself and, and prays to the Lord that, not my will be done, but yours. Uh, let this from me, but not my will be done, but yours be done. And then he goes back to his disciples and he finds them sleeping and he says, can't you even watch and pray with me for one hour? He goes away again. And he prays and he comes back and finds them sleeping. And, and in Mark's account of this, here's what he says to Peter. Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray. Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. We're at that point in the Lord's Prayer where our, our normal language is about praying that we would not fall into temptation. That we, would, that we would be saved from temptation, that God would not lead us into temptation. Uh, the translation that is in the Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way, do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. That phrase, time of trial, is the same phrase in the Greek, same words as pray that you do not fall into temptation. We're not quite sure how to translate that word that's used there. It's not used very often in, in the Greek. It's kind of a, a biblical word that, that the different writers seem to be using. And we're, we just know it has this idea to it of, of being brought into a time where, where you can't help yourself anymore but do wrong. <laughs> God save us from that time. Don't bring us into that time where we're going to give in to the enemies around us. Don't, don't bring us into that space where we lose hope, where we fall apart. God, save us. This whole Lenten season, we've been diving into the Lord's Prayer. And part of the reason we're diving into the Lord's Prayer during Lent is this interaction that Jesus has with Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. One of the Lenten stories 
is that time where Jesus is praying and pouring out his heart before the Father that not my will be done but yours, Lord. And then he comes back to his disciples and he urges them, watch and pray. Watch and pray. We also are in this time of paying attention to the Lord's Prayer because right now we learn from Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. And Jesus Christ, who right now is at the right hand of God the Father, is also interceding for us. And so if we want to join God in what God is doing, we join the Spirit and we join Jesus by joining in prayer. And so we're learning during this Lenten season to let go of our sins, to let go of our busyness, to let go of the things that are are cluttering our hearts, and to come before God in a posture of prayer. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about how this prayer and the desire in this prayer for God's kingdom to come even includes us praying that God would be our provider and we would trust God for our daily bread. And this prayer includes being invited into that holy dance of the the spirit of reconciliation where we learn to live like Jesus and live with the spirit by forgiving each other. Having that reconciliation of God spill out into our relationships. So it's not only our material needs that we're called to pray for and trust God for, it's our relationship relationship needs that we're called to trust God for. And today, we enter into that posture where we say, God, there are actually some things that are just too big for us. And we need you here, too. The Heidelberg Catechism's teaching on this part of the prayer is particularly powerful because it calls us to do something incredibly countercultural. Calls us to admit we can't do it all. It calls us to admit we have limits. Most of us live as if we are that telephone pole that we have so many things coming into our lives. We're overloaded. And we don't even know how to stop. We don't know how to slow down, to be still. We don't know how to say, no, I can't do that. We live in a culture that's constantly telling us to take on more and more and more. The catechism says this. This is what it means to pray, do not bring us to that time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. It means that by ourselves, we are too weak to hold our own even for a moment. It's almost like a a group that we need to stand up in and say, I'm a sinner, and I can't make this on my own. I can't do this on my own. And that is the posture we're being called into in this part of the prayer to say, Lord, I'll work with you. I'll, I'll do my work and, and as best I can provide for my needs, but knowing that even my ability to work comes from you. And I'll forgive others as you have forgiven me by your grace and by your strength. But quite honestly, Lord, there are things in this world and in this life that are simply too big for me. And I need to confess that I'm only human. I'm finite. And not just finite, but I'm broken. There are things that are too much. By ourselves, we are too weak to hold our own even for a moment. And this is where the catechism is interesting because it, it, it doesn't just say you can't do it. It says you actually have three enemies that are coming against you. 
You have three enemies that make it impossible for you to live this Christian life on your own. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. It's like we have a field of traps all set up around us that are just waiting for us to put our foot in or our hand in or our mouth in, <laughs> to do something, to think something, to act in a way that, that pulls us away from God and shatters our trust that God's grace is sufficient. And the Catechism says there's three of those enemies. Be alert and of sober mind, Peter says. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I had to laugh when I first saw this picture on the internet, a lion actually licking its lips. (laughs) We live in a part of the world where we don't talk about the devil very much. We live in a part of the world where we kind of go, ah, Satan, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we don't think very much about the devil being active in our lives and in the world, trying to turn us away from God, trying to actually destroy our faith and confidence in Christ. Many of our brothers and sisters, fellow Christians around the world, live in spaces and places where they recognize that the devil is real and active. They live under the threat of physical persecution, the hands of governments and others who are coming to kill them because they have gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. And if you listen to their testimonies, they talk about how the devil is real. People live in parts of the world where they, they have an understanding that there is spiritual warfare going on all the time. It's not quite that there's a demon in every bush, but there is an awareness that there is actually demonic forces at work in this world who do not want us to follow Jesus Christ and who do not want the kingdom of God to come. And those demons, the work of the devil, is powerful. It's stronger than we can handle on our own. And so when we are called to say, Lord, we are too weak to stand up even for a moment, part of what we're saying is, Lord, there are enemies of yours and of the coming of your kingdom that are bigger than us that we do not understand and we desperately need you to rescue us. Rescue us from the work of the devil. We do not understand it. We do not understand the work of the devil. He is bigger than us and we desperately need you to intervene. And in our culture where we have become desensitized and dull in our understanding of the the demonic forces that are at work in the world, we need to pause and even say, Lord, help us to be aware that there are things in this world that are against you and against your kingdom. And not to be so naive to think, but to be attentive that the devil is at work trying to pull us away from God. The second part says that, that the world is actually an enemy of ours. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. 
This is not a, we need to escape the world and everything in the creation is bad. But what this is saying is that the world has a way of corrupting our desires and pursuing things and telling us that the most important things in life are things. That what's really important is, is finding success in the world or fame or, or some sense of notoriety where people like your posts. It's gaining that popularity. It's gaining that material success. And what ends up happening is we bend our lives and the patterns of our lives around being successful in the eyes of the world. Making sure that we have the right retirement account set up. Making sure that we've pursued the right vocation and job so that we can be wealthy. Making sure that we don't ever come into a situation where we encounter suffering, whether ours or somebody else's. And the world tells us again and again, these are the things that make for a successful life. And it runs counter to the gospel message where we're called to love one another, to lay down our lives for one another. We find ourselves sometimes in that place where the parables of Jesus about the sower and the seed and the weeds that grow up become more relevant, where our faith is being choked out by the worries and concerns of the world. I will not have enough. I will not be successful enough. I will not be popular enough. I can't make it. And we feel our faith choking as if God has abandoned us. This world and the desires of the world leading us away from a trust in God, that God is our provider and that God will take care of us and that God will watch over us no matter our circumstances, that God will never leave us or forsake us world constantly pointing to us, hey, God isn't here. Hey, look, God isn't here. Did God really say that? We find ourselves doubting God's care and God's love. But it's not just external things. And these first two enemies are external to us. Scripture teaches and the catechism reflects on that teaching, saying that, that part of our enemy is actually inside of us. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It's as if the catechism here and scripture here is holding a mirror up in front of us and saying, take a look inside. Take a look inside of you and the choices that you're making, the anger that you hold towards a sibling, uh, the selfishness that grows up inside of you where you won't listen to people who have authority over you, the stubbornness that's inside of you that you won't give up the sin that you want. We find ourselves very similar to what Paul said. I find myself doing what I know I ought not to do. We make a mess of our lives. It's much easier to point to the world and say, the devil made me do it. Or to point to the world around us and say, but this is just the way the world operates and I have to survive. And point to things outside of us. It's much more difficult to pause and stop and say, it's me, oh Lord. It's my sin too. 
part of the reason that we have a time of confession. Even though it's uncomfortable and not popular to do, we have a time of confession every week in our worship services is to recognize that the sin and brokenness of the world is not just out there, it's in here. There's a a legendary, very popular saying that gets used from time to time or a story of in the early 1900s in England where some uh, editors of a paper put out a question inviting essay responses back about the question, what is wrong in the world? G.K. Chesterton, a theologian, simply responded, dear sirs, I am G.K. Chesterton. Until we can get to that point of saying, Lord, it's my sin. It's me. It's my brokenness. We're going to continue to be fooled by the other enemies too. The catechism is to enter into a place where we say, Lord, rescue us. Rescue us not just from the devil out there who is at work in this world and is stronger than we are, Rescue us not just from the desires and the corruption in the world that leads us down paths of unholiness and unrighteousness, but rescue us even from ourselves, for the corruption and the sin is inside of us, and we desperately need you. This posture in the prayer is that ultimate bending down of our knees and saying before God, God, left up to me and my own devices, I'll choose sin again, and I know it, and I'm sorry. But the catechism doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop in a posture of hopelessness. It actually bends us towards a place of hope. Normally, in our tradition, we don't talk about the third person of the Trinity very often. We like talking about God the Father who created all things and and made everything good. God the Almighty Father who, who gave us the commands and who's over everything. And we like to talk about Jesus Christ the Son because it's only through his death and resurrection that we have a forgiveness of our sins. But we tend to stop there. One of my professors, as I was writing my dissertation, just wrote on the side of of a side comment and said, do you believe in the Trinity or the Binity? So I went back to him and he said, I don't hear the Holy Spirit in here. Where's the Holy Spirit? And it was a good question. I had to grapple with, where is the place of the Holy Spirit in our lives? That God does not leave us on our own, but actually sends the Spirit of God the Father and God the Son to dwell in us as we're facing these enemies. We're called to receive the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit so that we may not go down to defeat in this spiritual struggle, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to be at work in us and through us and around us. We need the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and to transform us so that we begin to desire not the things of this world, but the things of the Spirit. And that in our lives, in place of anger and bitterness and selfishness and rage and malice and lust and hatred, we start to see things like love 
and joy and peace and gentleness and kindness and, and all that fruit of the Spirit growing. These are the things that God is leading us into and saying, I'm not leaving you on your own, but I'm actually giving you my spirit so that you no longer have to live as a slave to the sin and corruption in your own hearts. I'm giving you my spirit so that you will no longer have to be entangled and caught up in the worries of the world. I will take care of you because I am with you and I haven't left you. God gives us the spirit so that we can actually resist the devil, so that the gates of hell cannot overcome God's people, but that God himself dwelling in us and working through us can transform us to resist all of these enemies that are aligned against us, so that we can actually and truly believe the good news that in God's love, He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to save us, not only from our sins, but from the sins of the whole world. That God in his son, Jesus Christ, and through the Spirit is at work now, putting every enemy of his and ours under his feet until that last enemy, death, is put in its place. And death dies. And the consequences of the curse are undone. And we find ourselves living in the fullness of God's presence and God's love. What we hear in this, in this uh, teaching of the catechism is a clear naming of our reality. Our reality that we are caught up in a spiritual battle that is a real battle that involves the devil and the world and even our own spirits. And yet in the midst of that battle, God has overcome through his son Jesus Christ and has given us his spirit that we might resist these enemies and learn to live a new way. A new way that anticipates the fullness and the coming of his kingdom. Paul adds this. In the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, kind of like Peter and the disciples in the garden. In fact, we can barely get ourselves up to pray. We tend to fall asleep on the job. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit is interceding for us. The spirit that God has caused to dwell within us and to live within us is actually interceding for us and praying for us that we might not be overcome by the world or by the devil or by our own sins, but that we might be set free from them to experience the fullness of life that is in God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. Let's pray. We thank you.